When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've had people in class tell me, you're the best English teacher I ever had and filled me up with such a glow that made my day. <laughs> and, then, and then I step outside and I overhear them next door going to the next teacher saying, you're the best English teacher <laughs> I've ever had. Hi, Disha. Hey, Donnie. And welcome, everyone, to Ursa Short Fiction, the podcast where we geek out on our favorite short stories. I'm Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I'm Disha Filia, author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. As always, this show is produced with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll get exclusive bonus episodes, and you'll help fund future stories and conversations. Today... We are so thrilled to welcome Sadiq Fofana to the podcast. He is a New York City public school teacher, a 2018 fellow at the Center for Fiction, and he was named a writer to watch by Publishers Weekly. He is the author of the 2022 collection Stories from the Tenants Downstairs, in which he introduces readers to the residents of Banneker Homes, a low-income residential building in Harlem where a looming rent increase affects everyone in different ways tenants young and old who weave in and out of each other's lives. Sadiq earned his MFA from New York University, and he lives with his wife and son in New York City. Donnie, are you excited? I'm excited. Oh my gosh. I mean, just to give y'all a preview of this conversation, (laughs) Sadiq Fofana is probably my new favorite storyteller, not only in, in the book, because the book is incredible and packed with incredible voices, But the stories that he has to tell about his journey to becoming a published author, the stories that he tells from his classroom, from living in New York in different boroughs for many years, he's just fascinating, fascinating, and so inspiring. And just, you know, people talk about writers being generous, and he comes to mind when, you know, so generous is you'll hear in our conversation and in his thoughtfulness about uh, sharing his writing process. You know, he sounds like a generous teacher. Um, And then on the page, there's such care that he takes with his characters. You know, we talk a bit about, you know, there's some characters who may be hard to love, but we still love them anyway, thanks to Sadiq and and the way that he molds these characters. And there's just... um, kind of knowing and you can tell he does a lot a lot of observation which you know we talked to him yes. about that observing people in New York City and it just really brings the characters and the stories in this collection alive as we said in the intro you know this is a multi-generational set of stories and the voices are incredible I know that's something that um, stuck out to you Donnie oh for sure I listened to this on audio and it was I was just blown away by the performances of the cast, but just the the, the vernacular that he mm. is so masterful in wielding and capturing voices that you might not necessarily, you know, see captured on the page very often and giving respect to those voices. It was such a beautiful read. And as always, this conversation contains spoilers. So make sure you go back and listen to Sadiq's audio story for Tumble and then come back here for the whole interview. And without further ado, here's our conversation with Sadiq Fofana. Sadiq Fofana, welcome to the Ursa podcast. We're so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for this gorgeous collection stories from the tenants downstairs we're gonna kick it off where we kick it off with all of the guests that we have by asking what was the journey to publication for this beautiful book Um, when you started writing it 
how you found the right publishing home, all of those things, sort of your journey as a writer with this book. Oh, yeah, it was it was a long journey. I guess it would start maybe 2006. You know, I was I was always into like uh, poetry, creative writing. Um, My creative outlet was hip hop. So more of a natural like MC than anything else. And I was at the age of 23 and I was thinking, you know, just uh, graduated college and, you know, thinking about being creative, thinking about art. And I had been performing and writing raps all my life. And I always thought, even when I was performing my raps, being an MC, always thought like, if there was no such thing as hip hop, what would I do? Mm. And the answer was always, you know, write stories. So the tail end of college, recent grad, I started to just try to write a story. I bought a gray notebook from the university bookstore and in the Sharpie, I wrote stories from our tenants downstairs. Which is, you know, it ended up becoming stories from the tenants. The only thing I changed was the hour. And so when I started writing in that notebook, I just wrote basically stories based on what had happened to me or around me from the ages of maybe five to 23. And none of the stories had anything to do with tenants or anything. I just, you know, I was just thinking in album titles, you know, and like, I always, one of my favorite rappers is Tupac. My favorite rapper is Tupac. And he would come up with the album title and and the concept and just have the song titles without even knowing what the content was. And so I just came up with the the name, not uh, knowing what the content was. And I started just writing and writing uh, stories. But the very first story that actually made it to the collection was Young Entrepreneurs of Miss Bristol's Front Porch. That was the first story that made it in. And that began my obsession with vernacular, um, urban vernacular, American vernacular, Black mm-hmm. vernacular. And, you know, as a, as a public school teacher teaching in Brooklyn, I was surrounded by vibrant language, colorful language. And I saw it, t- took it as a mission to study it and to relish it when it's rendered on the page and try to render it on the page myself. And I did this uh, for years. I decided to apply to MFA program at NYU, a bunch of New York schools. I got rejected to all of them, except for the new school, which I got waitlisted to. Shout out to the new school. (laughs) Thank you for the waitlist. I was still a public school teacher I decided to give it a couple more years and to apply again. I applied again. I got a couple more choices, including the choice that I had coveted all along, and that was uh, NYU. And that was a dream come true because at NYU, you know, everybody was there. Um, Sadie Smith. Right. uh, Who else? Jonathan Saffron Four, my great workshop leaders, Darren Strauss, Chuck Wachtel, Rick Moody was there, Lori Moore, who ended up being the professor who changed my life. You know, very few times does does a uh, does one's life play out like a movie, but it did in that instance where I was having a really like down semester. It was my last semester. And, I, you know, it's funny, the times where I've received the most validation as a writer are sometimes times where I've felt the least like a writer. And at NYU, that last uh, semester or second to last semester, a few workshops were like a little beguiling. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I could do this. And I was going through the motions, but my heart, I'd quit in my heart. And uh, Lori Moore saw another one of the stories that made it to this collection, which is the, the Okie Doke. Mm, and yeah, I love she's that like, one. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. So she saw that one. It was one more, and she held on to copies of those. You know, usually you you print out a copy for everyone in your class, including your professor, and they all they give it back, and that's it. You know, 
And that's what happened with those two stories. But at the end of the semester, Lori Moore was like, can I get a copy of those stories? And foolish me, I had no idea what she was planning on doing with them. So I was late with them, just like I was <laughs> to this to the podcast. Um, I was I was late. I gave it to her like maybe three weeks later than I was supposed to deliver it to, to her. Um, and it turns out she sent it to a bunch of places. She sent it to her editor. She sent wow. it to the to the New Yorker. I mean, all of all of whom they you know gave me kind of rejections, and they were very like very encouraging. But just the gesture mm-hmm. of that really um, you know filled me with some hope. And mm-hmm. um, finally, she had another student. And she contacted that student. One of her former students had an agent and said, could you forward this to uh, to your agent? And that student of hers forwarded my work. And that's how it en- ended up with my agent. I tried again and again, manuscript after manuscript. And, you know, it wasn't looking good. <laughs> the summer of 2019, it was not looking good. A phone call occurred between my my agent and I. And I had been thinking about delivering this phone call for a good three months before I, I delivered the phone call. And I said, and what I was going to tell him was, you know what? I'm just going to put this, these stories aside for like a year or two. And I'm going to uh, decide after a year or two if I want to come back to them. And I said that to my agent I said, I'm going to take the, the year to. And his response to that was, let's send them out. Wow. <laughs> he never said that. He never says that. <laughs> he never says that. He always says, like, he doesn't even, you know, it's shout out to my agent, Ethan Bassoff. He's, he's, he's the man. He's the man. But Ethan, you know that when <laughs> we meet, you will be like, let me say that they're not ready. <laughs> You'll be like, Ooh, so what do you think? And I'll be like, I, I, I guess I could work on them for six months more. <laughs> but that time he was like, let's send them out. And then it's funny how it's like a whole new world opens. That is a combination of like hard work, perseverance, but then also luck. And I had delivered that call in June. And he said, and this is what made him like a really good agent. Like that I, which I hadn't known for a couple, I mean, I know he was good, but then I was like, whoa, okay, I see what he's doing here. So he said, we're going to wait till after the 4th of July to send it out. Because if we send it out now, people are going to read it and then they're going to go to a barbecue and forget it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The timing is everything. Yep. It really is. It really is. It really is. And so that's that's what we did. We sent it out after 4th of July and we got a few responses. And that, you know, that glee, as you both know, the glee of the accepted manuscript is one that, that cannot be described. And then COVID hit. Right. <laughs> so like I was it was supposed to come out the 2021 and I had been teaching. I've been public school teacher since 2007. There's never been. And before that, I was a tutor. So there's never been from the time I was five till now, there's never been a year where I've not had a school year. I've not been living like with the measurement of a, of a school year. That uh, spring of 2020 was the first semester where I had applied for a sabbatical at my, at my job. And it was accepted. And it meant that from February 2020 to September 2020, I could just spend all that time at home at the library, just revising the manuscript. And it was bittersweet because, you know, I missed my students. And but then it was also cool because I had some time to edit and things were going okay. January, February and then March, everybody was home Mm -hmm. and I was stressed and I was I was anxious and I did not have one creative bone in me. And the pandemic ended up being, you know, the reason I, I had to take a, a, another year to edit, to process everything. And, you know, it came out 2022 and we're here. And we get that email like 
again, the administrative things. And there's a list of all these writers who I've either read or have seen and who are killing it. And my editor is like, we're going to send your manuscript out to these, these people and see if they will write you a blurb. And I was like, really? <laughs> really? And of all the people, you know, Disha's name was on there. And I was like, what? What? And <laughs> Disha was the only stranger who, like, you know, blurred me. It was great. It was great. Um, and also Mateo, that's Karapora. He, yes. uh, he, he blurred me as well. So shout out to you both. Um, it's been it's been a roller coaster, a bumpy ride. It, I mean, I didn't hesitate. Um, <laughs> your editor is Kiese's editor, Kiese mm-hmm. Lehman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she sent such a wonderful letter um, to me about you and about the book. And with that, I had never heard of you or the book, um, <laughs> but it made me want to stop what I was doing and read it right then. Oh, wow. And um, and I just I absolutely loved it. So it was truly a pleasure to to read, to get that early read and and be able to, you know, tell anyone who would listen, you know, about this book that was coming and, and that it was fire. Um, yeah, I remember so. you telling me about it, Disha. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 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 And this is, you know, this is the second time you and I have had a chance yeah. to, to chop it up. And one of the things that when I did my research in, in, in preparation of talk to talk to you, this re- interview you did stuck out and you were talking about how the American dream was a theme that you were conscious of as you were writing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. these stories over the time that that was the thread that ran through the stories. Can you talk a bit about choosing that theme and especially given, you know, the context now that we all have about when you were writing, you know, pre-COVID into, you know, in the aftermath of COVID, how did you land on it? And then how did things change as you were going through uh, things like COVID? Yeah, it was, I think it's something that kind of, you know, organically sprung, sprung out. At first, I didn't intend on writing about how American citizens who are in the working class or um, in the underbelly of society, some might say, would like deal with the American dream. But it just ended up just sprouting into that. And it, it definitely made me fascinated about people who announce their dreams and the person who listens to someone who expresses their dreams and how we react to someone who is articulating their aspirations in life. And I always think about Especially, you know, as a public school teacher, there's some common professions that you hear when you ask kids what they want to be. I think maybe from 2007 to like 2016, it would be like the boys, a lot of them want to be a ball player. A lot of people, they, they want to be in movies. Sometimes people just say like, I want to be rich. Some people say, I want to be a businessman or a businesswoman. And a lot of times I'm listening to these dreams as an educator. You want to be so, you want to be so encouraging. You want to say, that's great. Um, work towards that and it will happen. But then as a person who's endured life and has, has, has gone through obstacles and knows a little bit more about the world and society, you also have that moment where you ask yourselves, And where I ask myself, like, is this dream realistic? So when a boy says, I want to play in the NBA and, you know, they're not even on their high school basketball team. You think about that. You think about how people have dreams and to what extent it's it's realistic. And when I think about it, sometimes it brings me to a, a, a place of sadness because for me, one of the saddest things is this, and I, I've been the person who has done this as well, who has like articulated a dream that might not be realistic. And when we think about the American dream, I think about in the, that movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, and they talk about the, the Constitution. And there's a moment where it's like somehow the founding fathers knew 
to put in the phrase, the pursuit of happiness and not necessarily happiness itself. You have the right to pursue it, but we don't know if you're going to, you're going to achieve it. And I think about that. I think about that. And and each one of these stories, you know, that theme I have to grapple with it. And I think the characters grapple with it. I'll never forget. There was this guy. So every now and then there are people who like leave the profession of teaching and they, they, they do another job. Like for instance, in this guy's case, it was, he, he was a phys ed teacher and he uh, left to work on wall street and he came back for clients. So he, came to one of our professional developments and he wanted to take us on as clients to, you know, teach us how to manage our money and to like invest in mutual funds and whatnot. And I thought, okay, this, this guy's cool. And he was a a former educator. And I went to his office downtown Manhattan and he's, he was super cool. You know, he set up my first like account, but I do remember one moment where I was like, he was talking about the future and this is when I just got an agent and I was very, very excited. I was like, yeah, and I just got a, a, an agent. And, you know, maybe one day there might be like a tiny bit of money from 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 writing that I could put in this. And I remember the look he gave me like that is the most intangible issue ever told me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. And to that, to, after that, I never mentioned writing ever again. But is that con- oh. that concept of like. You articulate the American dream, and do you know how reachable it is? Mm. Um. Yeah, I remember having conversations with that with people <laughs> when I quit. So I used to work at Essence, and when I quit that job, you mm-hmm. know, Black people were like, are you crazy? You're quitting your job to do what? <laughs> like, you know? And some of those people, honestly, like I had to cut them loose, you know, mm-hmm. because it was just like... This is what I'm arranging my life around. And this is my dream. And I was at an age where I'm like, I'm going to at least give it a shot, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Sadiq, one of my favorite things in fiction is voice. And Mm -hmm. each of these stories is anchored by such an unforgettable, unique voice. And that was really amplified for me by listening to the audiobook, which is just incredible. I mean, mm. so many of the stories, like the okie doke, I was like, I think I was washing dishes at the time and I had to stop because I was like, oh, I was just so compelled. And the voices are vastly different from, you have Mimi in the first story, who's a young mother kind of, you know, living, trying to make the rent and Mr. Murray in the last story, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the elder who plays chess um, outside Banneker houses. I'd like to hear what your process and craft is in developing voice. Mm. And really, like, is there anything in particular you did to get into each character's voice? Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, and I think voice, like, links the three of us. And we approach it in, in, in different ways, Mm-hmm. And Donnie, I think in your book, I I see it's like it's polyphonic. There are many characters and the characters come rapid fire. They're yeah. like they say their bit in dialogue and then another character builds on the story and people come back. And in it, I see, you know, your thesis or your angle in it, which is which is very unique. And then in Disha's, I see like women of color you know, the temptation would be to portray women of color like in a monolithic way, but then to just give color everyone, to give like a, a uniqueness and a freshness to everyone is is a, a literary challenge. And, you know, Disha knocks it out the park. And for me, it's it just started off with like a fascination of what you could, but people don't know that they're, their words can be written down. What would it sound like? What would it sound like? And I think when I think of like urban vernacular and I think of American vernacular and growing up in the inner city of Boston, there I would be like, there's two types of, of voices that I, w- I was very, very familiar with. And like, it, it would be like the okie doke type voice where it's the, the young man is kind of troubled, curses a lot, vulgar but then profound um i knew that voice and that was the like one of the first voices that i just naturally just try to inhabit 
you know, and growing up in the inner city when you don't want to look weak, sometimes you pretend to be that person. And then the other, the voice I knew semi well was the voice of, of Mimi, which is like the young woman who who has attitude and just um, approaches everything with uh, blunt directness. And so those were the two that seemed kind of natural. But then I think when it comes to writing, writers are very humble people, you know, like, and Donnie and Disha, you strike me as very, very humble people. But then we're, we're ambitious as well. We're ambitious as well. And to write a, a book that has like many characters, you kind of at some point take on the take on a challenge of like, what am I going to push myself to do? And mm-hmm. I wanted to push myself to write beyond Mimi and Swan and to see if I could transcend and go and and portray someone who was a lot older than me, mm-hmm. someone who identified different sexuality. Um, so that was very conscious to try to like inhabit people. And it was also very, very scary. But a, a lot of it is listening. It's, it's just a lot of listening. And it's just coming up with the Socratic approach of, you know, I'm not the master of this. I don't know how to do this. No one owns storytelling. It's not like something that is on a high hill. Like I could listen to everyday people on the subway or people around me and listen to how they they use language um, all the time. And I I tried to do that. There was I was I was glancing to through that book Rabbit Hutch Tess Gunty at who won the National Mm -hmm. Book Award. I was flipping through it, and there's this one. See, I don't even know what the scene's about, but it's like the couple's having a, a, a conversation and they're like, one of them is like, remember Frank? And the other one's like, oh, Tina's Frank? And just that little bit of like colloquialism where you're you're referring to names and it's like, you know, two people of the same name and mm-hmm. you refer to them a, by like their spouse's possession. Like that's Tina's Frank, or you know, like I hadn't really seen that. People do that all the time, but it was like the first time I had seen that on the page. And that's what I'm fascinated with, like things that we do with language when we're not writing it down. And so that that was my approach with uh, these stories and just the challenge of making every character at least biographically different from the other. And the precarity of your character's situations in the collection, you know, some are facing eviction, some are facing other losses, and it, that precarity is just palpable. Mm-hmm. And the characters themselves, they evoke more complicated feelings than pity, you know, for their circumstances. Um, it was hard to just love or just condemn those characters who, you know, do things that that are objectionable. And this is a great example of, of what you doing what you do in these stories is something that I ask my students to be mindful of when they're writing characters we call it no saints no demons that people have layers and we're all a little bit of both Um, and so can you talk a bit about your process of creating characters who defy that kind of easy characterization that can't be put in those very black and white boxes yeah I I love that no saints no demons because that just really captures it right there in that phrase. It's tough. Like writing is tough. It's hard. And I'm, I'm talking to like two, two people who've mastered it. And you're sure you're like, yeah, we know, we know. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> we have not mastered it. <laughs> no, no, no. Every day is a journey. <laughs> it's like, listen, it's these a- conversations are us learning from our guests and learning from right. writers. Like, you know, wow. please. Yo, it, it is tough it's tougher to write than to put real life on a transcript in real life the worst stereotypes could just be like a regular thing and it's like in real life you could have someone named daquan in a, in, a, in real life if you put it in fiction you have to do work to like to justify your choice to let the the reader know that you're making you're making a choice and in real life, stereotypes, even though like one stereotype does not define our people, you can still like see things in real life that would make you like 
cringe. You could still see on the corner somebody who would say the F word, every other word. But on the page, you have to get, you can only get away with it a couple of times before it becomes, you know, excessive, explicit, and whatnot. And that's the, the deal. I think a lot of it when my approach is like, how do I acknowledge a stereotype or acknowledge a type of person without having it come across that I'm just like lazily playing to tropes. And, you know, sometimes I, I succeed and sometimes I, I don't, but I think that's always in, in my head. I think a lot of it from real life, it goes back to teaching. A lot of, a lot of things have, um, have taught me about the balance of people's characters. Like I've had people, as an English teacher, I've had people curse me out and say, you're the worst English teacher I've ever had. I've had people say that. I've had people say that. And then we'll have a one-on-one -on -one conversation and it turns out that they were just having a, a, a bad day. I've had people in class tell me, you're the best English teacher I ever had and filled me up with such a glow that made my day. <laughs> and, then, and then I step outside and I overhear them next door going to the next teacher saying, you're the best English teacher I've ever had. And it's like, to see the balance, I mean, you think the kid who's calling you the best English teacher, it'd, it'd be about the teacher. But really it's about, it might be like coming from a, they might be having an agenda. And so like observing people and again, going back to no saints, no demons, which is perfect. Like just not only portraying what people do, but why they do it. And in Mimi's story, it was like for a while. And, and I mean, I, I wrote that story in 2010. It probably took me a good seven years to, to, to write because it was like, she's always doing the shoplifting. She's, and that was the act always in the story, but it wasn't until years into it that I really determined like, well, what is it? Like, why is she doing this? And what I came up with was like, she doesn't want to do it. And she's actually has a, a high standards for herself, but it's a compromise of her. The sadness of her act is it's a compromise of her, her standards. And it doesn't look like it to the outside world, but to her, it is a compromising of standards. But it's so frustrating because I really get down on myself because when you're portraying people who are imperfect, um, as a writer of color, you always have it, that person in your head where you're like, Am I moving the culture forward? What are people going to say about yeah. like stereotypes mm -hmm. and the way things are portrayed? And in real life, you know, real life sometimes doesn't go to that, doesn't have that scrutiny. I This is a real story, real story. So I, this happened like a couple of months ago. And, you know, so in the first story, Rent, Rent Manual, Mimi... I love spoiling stories on sp podcasts, so I'm a spoiler story. <laughs> we have, you're spoiler friendly. That's all, all good. And so she's, you know, she ha basically has to steal diapers to 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 make rent. And I'm like thinking about it, like I really portrayed a, a young woman who is committing a crime and stealing. Um, am I moving the culture forward? Um, you know, just a couple months ago, I'm. I'm about to take the train to downtown to meet with Lori Moore because she was in town. And I wanted to go to Walgreens to give her a little gift. I was like, I wanted to get like a, a journal or something, which I never ended up giving, giving it to her because I was so self-conscious of the gift. But I was, I was in the Walgreens and I'm about to go to the cashier. And right before I go to cashier, she kind of gives me a, a nod and she goes, look over there. And there's a woman stealing a box of diapers and i'm like okay. you cannot write this <laughs> wow. so the woman stealing a box of diapers and she like walks out of the store it wasn't like oh let me hide this she just brazenly walks out and the cashier brazenly does not do anything because she's mm -hmm. just like i'm not gonna do anything about it but she's like yeah just she can walk out she walked out thing beeped and everything and i'm thinking i spent seven years in my story, <laughs> trying to make it, <laughs> worrying right. about Mimi feeling bad about this. <laughs> and in real life, and I'm sure, you know, if you were to paint that woman's picture, there, there's more to it than that. But mm -hmm. again, that balance of not only people 
their behavior, but like why the behavior happens. And I think that why kind of always is a, a, an elemental question that I go back to with the stories and the characters. I um, want to talk about Tumble, mm-hmm. which is one of those stories where the demons and the saints get all mixed up. Right? <laughs> Part of the mm-hmm. time I was team Nisha, other time I was team, you know, Kia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it really tugged at my allegiances. Um, but they, in, in this story, they are both, um, the reality is that they are both young women that are being crushed by oppressive systemic forces. And then in this story, they're being pitted against each other. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're really not thinking about the larger system at play. We're thinking about the drama, you know, between the two of them that's unfolding that, you know, the, we're thinking about the personal not necessarily mm-hmm. uh, the political. And so I'm curious what the genesis was for that story. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for asking that. The genesis of that story was I was watching a documentary called P-Star Rising on PBS. And it's about a young girl and her dad. And they live in New York City. And the young girl happens to be like a phenom child rapper. And so the whole documentary is following this dad and his daughter as they go to like basketball games and she's performing at halftime and then she gets a record deal. And I was looking through what I had written and I want, I was like, man, I just want to portray like, it's so much destitution in this, in this, I want to portray like someone who's a prodigy, which happens all the time in the the buildings in New York. I, I, I lived in, we have phenomenal people. In the midst of like the poverty, phenomenal people, you know, in my building uh, in, in Harlem, there was this this guy who was like a producer for 106 in Park. It was just so you just meet these like amazing, amazing people. And I just wanted to like portray one of one of them. And I thought like a gymnast. And this kind of shows around what time I started writing, because this was around the time of of Gabby Douglas. Not even Simone Biles. <laughs> it was Gabby. It was Gabby Douglas, and she had just won the All Around Gold, and everyone was super happy. I was super happy. Everyone I knew was real happy for her. It was just like wow to see a girl of color do that was amazing. I also thought like wow to transcend like that, you really have to be. Like you have to be at that level to really, really transcend. And I kept asking myself, like, what happens to someone who is really that good? But instead of being better than 99.99999 of the girls who are gymnasts, they're only better than 99%. Mm. And the answer was live a regular life for the most part. And it was a metaphor from my own life to that point as well. Like there, none of these stories in here are, are autobiographical. They're all based on composites of people I knew, friends and family. But if people would ask like, which is the most, what is the, feels the most autobiographical? And it's that story. I never was a, a child gymnast or anything like that, but I had gone to an elite private school gone to an uh, elite college, tried to do this hobby of writing, got into a nice MFA program, got an agent and was still writing. So like in many ways, you know, I've I've reached to the point of more than what most writers who who embark on this reach to that, to to the point of like getting into an MFA, getting an agent. But at at the same time, I still had a pretty, pretty regular life. And so I think it's autobiographical in that sense. And that with Nisha's life and my life, it's like you try this thing, you're pretty decent at it, but then you have to come back, come back home. And from there, once I thought of that, like metaphor of you, you do something, you get good at it, but then you're not like the absolute, absolute best. Once I got to that, I just needed some like some conflict and 
you know, the easiest way for me to put conflict in that story was to introduce another, another person. And that person represents like, you know, the other side of things, someone who lives in the city, who's grown up in this building and may not have had the access that Nisha has and what that does and how that would bring her um, in conflict with, with Nisha. And it took, it took a while to like, to go through those drafts because the first, I want to say the first 20 drafts were it's the first 20 drafts took place in like 1976. Like I wanted it to be like, this was Gabby Douglas before Gabby Douglas. Mm. But my agent was like, you know what? We're more concerned about what's happening now. And so I made it, I made it now. And I, there was, I got it to the draft where they're in conflict, but it's, it's all, things that Kia does to Nisha, like with uh, the beat down and uh, just kind of when Nisha comes back and her friends are like making fun of her because she's part of this new world and she doesn't belong anymore. Like, you know, I got it to that point, but I think towards the end, I had to give, I had to, to not make Nisha such an angel of some, someone who like transcended, came mm-hmm. back and all of a sudden, you know, she's like, why are these things happening to me? Why why do people not like me and whatnot? It had to be more like she did something too. You know, she had a sense mm-hmm. of, you know, loftiness to that. And so I think those were the three phases. It was just thinking about like how people grow up in a high rise and become prodigies, but not virtuosos. And then how that brings them into conflict with people and how they bring that conflict upon themselves. And so that's how that came. And I really appreciate what, what you wrote about that story in electric lit. I, I usually don't, I don't read any, like anything that's out there reviews, but when I read what you wrote and how you like got the, the dynamic between the, the characters, I was like, you know, I don't know if I did this on the page, but she definitely knew what I was trying to do. <laughs> you did that. <laughs> you did that. I want to go back for a second to what you were saying about the rabbit hutch and yeah. that moment of seeing that little bit of dialogue and recognizing it as so familiar and yet you've never seen it captured before mm-hmm. on the page. And it's like you're in my head because mm. I try to describe that same feeling about your stories when you're mm. writing those details about New York City, because I've lived here mm. for more than 20 years now. Mm. And, you know, moments like that, I often like bust out into a chuckle, not because <laughs> it's ha ha funny, but just because it's so familiar to me. It's so warm. Mm. Um, and I felt so much of the joys of New York, the glories of New York, but also the frustrations of, mm. of living in New York. Mm. Um, all those little details about the hat flip tricks at Showtime, mm. um, the specific geography of Harlem around the park, 129th and Convent, mm. all of that. Can you talk about your relationship to New York City and what are the little details you wrote that made you smile or wince in mm. sort of you know your feelings about living here mm, mm. I love that I love that question um, and th- thank you for those careful observations you know I grew I grew up in Boston I grew up in the inner city of Boston and it was you know and Boston's a pretty white city but there are like three neighborhoods in Boston that are like there where it's majority people of color and I and I, I come from a, a neighborhood called Roxbury and it's the same neighborhood uh that like new edition Ricky and Wright so that that's like that's uh, that's our claim to, to fame and so New York is just a, a much bigger version of where I, I grew up. You know, I'm a city kid and it felt a lot different. It felt like dirtier and louder and just more frenetic. But then it also felt like home in terms of uh, what people say out loud and whatnot. I'm so used to when I'm growing up, people just saying the most random things to themselves <laughs> and to people. And it just... For that, it just makes me feel comfortable. It makes me feel at home. First time I was on 125th, I was at a shoe store and uh, 
this guy, I guess he was just a little uh, ornery because he was waiting for like one of the, the sellers to bring a shoe out back from the from the back to him. And uh, he was just chiding them. He was just like, well, are you a knucklehead or are you a salesman? He said, <laughs> a knucklehead or a salesman. And I was like... <laughs> I was like stuff like that. It's just like I don't know. It's just it's it's just golden. There were times when writing this, I would just walk the streets and just challenge myself to like listen to what what people are saying and to just make observations about things. One one of the the ones that happened just while I was just walking through the the neighborhood was going to bodegas and just seeing the display of cheese and roast beef and whatnot. Mm. And in some bodegas, they, it looks like a very nice spread. And then in others, it looks like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> eat a sandwich from there. Everything's like a little bit gray, you know? <laughs> yeah, a little bit gray, right? It's like that plastic is not all the way wrapped around the roast beef. And, and, and I remember like going through and observing that and I you know came up with the line, that Mr. Murray says, where he says, oh, yeah, it was that bodega with the deli meat that the bees love so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, like, just things like that. And, like, how in certain places of the city, you know, New York is the city that never sleeps. But in certain parts of the city, certain times, people are still up. But it feels relatively quiet. And to be up at, like, two, three in the morning where it's still buzzing, but all you see is like loads of trash and you just hear like sanitation trucks around. Um, so that detail really struck me. And it's a lot of just just walking around and um, noticing things that are like Harlem specific, but then also that are like city, city life um, specific. And I lived in Harlem and then I lived in uh, Crown Heights for for two years and now i'm in the bronx and they all have their just different flavors but then it's at the same time all new york city when you go on the subway and you look at a a subway car and it's a hot day and all mm -hmm. the subway cars are filled and you make the mistake every time where you're like, oh, I'm going to go in the empty car. <laughs> and you find a surprise where there's either like no air conditioning or it smells really bad. And you're like, yeah. oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know why this is cleared out. Um, but those are those, those are uh, New York City's um, specific things that I just enjoy encountering. Um, yeah, that brought me a lot of joy. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> You know, speaking of, of neighborhoods and books, I was thinking about um, your collection brought to mind, The Women of Brewster Place, mm -hmm. and then um, also In the Heights. Mm. Um, were there books or other media that served as inspiration for these stories? Oh, yes, yes. So Women of Brewster Place, that was uh, definitely on the study list. Like in terms of structure, it'd be like Women of Brewster Place, Winesburg, Ohio, which is, I guess, the ground zero sometimes of uh, the linked collection that takes place all in the same same town, same area. Um, in terms of voice, Tony K. Bambara, you know, in terms of like the young, sassy girl who um, makes all these astute observations about life, that's Tony K. Bambara. Another one in terms of voice was Pushed by Sapphire, captures Harlem really well, captures a girl in, in, in public school really well. The Madonnas of Echo Park, Brando Skyhorse was another one. And it's just the California version of the linked link collection. And there are just so many more. And I think one thing that this project taught me to do was to come up with a playlist, a study list as I, I'm writing. And it wasn't like every single book had to relate to what I was writing, but I definitely did have a study list of a few titles and even titles that I never even got to like Stuart uh, Dybeck. I never got to read his collection, but I wanted to see how he portrayed Chicago. Um, so there, there, yeah, there were, there, there were a bunch, but 
off the bat, definitely Women of Brewster Place, pushed by Sapphire, definitely at the top, top of that list. Great reading list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I loved in your acknowledgments, which I always read acknowledgments <laughs> in these books, because I just like, I love to, it's just such a wonderful place of gratitude. And you see, you know, like people like the Lori Moores in your life. But I love seeing that you thanked your students, quote, past and present for inspiring you. And I had kind of a two-part question Mm -hmm. um, related to your teaching practice. Um, How would you say that your students or even teaching in general has made you a better or a sharper writer? And then what advice do you have for writers who are also working around other jobs that they pour Mm -hmm. into? Because, of course, teaching is a job that you pour into. Yeah, I'd say I've learned from my students empathy. I've learned uh, not to make declarative statements, but to ask questions. So Mm. the young teacher in me would have been like, if somebody came late to class, young Mr. Fofana would have been like, step outside. And then I would have gone outside and I would be like, you have been late three times this week. The fourth time, one more time, I'm calling home. And I would have applauded myself for being stern and being all about the business. But having taught like 15 years now, anytime someone does something that seems weird or that seems like disrespectful, when we have that conversation, the first thing that comes out of my, my mouth during that conversation is, is a question. So if someone's coming in late three times now, when they step out, I'm like, so tell me like, what's going on? What's up? Why? Mm-hmm. And I found that I've gotten way more answers. I've come to understand people more with questions than rather than just uh, indictments on, on, on behavior. You know, I remember this was one freshman, you know, the classic, like, talking, talking while I'm talking. And then it was time to do classwork, you know, and this is not even much of a story. This is kind of like a, this everyday thing that happens where I go, oh, okay, take out your pen, take out your pen, take out your pencil. And this kid's not doing it. And I say it a third time and he kind of gives me that like defiant, like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And it becomes a whole public confrontation. And again, we step outside and I go, bro, I just asked you to take out a pencil. Like, what's going on? Why, why are you giving me the pushback? And I found nine times out of 10 when I ask a question, students will give me an answer. They will be like, you know, in that kid's case, he was just like, I was going to do it. You were just pressing me. <laughs> and, I, and I realized that moment like, oh. I was kind of, you know, I didn't give you time to do it. And so I've always learned to like empathy and to, to ask questions and to, to know that like, I think one thing I learned from teaching in a title one school, my school is called a title one school. And it's when, you know, a high percentage of students like qualify for free lunch and whatnot. It's the, one of the most high, high needs type of schools in the city. And, but I've learned that talent is, is universal. It's crazy how universal it is. Students who are comedic geniuses, students who are musical geniuses, to the point where any like famous person who's from New York, I've taught a type of student like them. Like mm. I've taught like five um, Cardi B's. Yes, I, and I've <laughs> literally taught that type. I've I've literally taught like five young MAs, like the 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 real like sh- like strong, just strong personalities, just very just um, direct. I've taught ten Jesus and Merrills, <laughs> <laughs> like where it's like two friends who just go back and forth and banner with such great just nimbleness and it's, it's it's just great just the the, the people watching um and there was a it's it's interesting because one of our, our teachers in our school um after years our school didn't have a swim team she like started a swim team and they were covered in the in the new york times 
And one of the things that people put in the co- the comment was like, talent is is everywhere, no matter where it is. Even if there's like no access to to resources, there's still there's still people who are who are talented and people who say brilliant things. And I know from listening to uh, episodes of your podcast that you both ask a question like, "What is your favorite line from your from a story?" And, yeah. you know, just remember this, and you know, if you ask me this later, favorite line is when so one of the, oh, oh Najee, who's a kid in the life feed, he says, like, when I'm in class and I tell someone that their their breath smells like Jesus's sandals. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's my favorite line, because I didn't write that. Like, <laughs> stu- you know, I overheard a student playing the dozens with the other student. I was like, hilarious. I was like, that's hilarious. I'm still in that. Um, oh, <laughs> and so, yeah, just like listening and just the, the brilliance. As far as people who are who are teaching or, or doing another job and they're trying to write, my um, advice is guard your time. You know, there's 24 hours in a day and you think like, no matter how busy my day is, what time, how much time can I really protect and every day, no matter what happens, I can protect that time and I can use that time to write. And for me, it's just one measly hour. Like no matter how busy it is, like it's college recommendations or I got to submit grades or, or, you know, plan the yearbook or whatever. I can always save an hour. And, you know, once you have that, then you, you guard it and you write. And I think the other psychological advice I have just for people who are doing other jobs, but then also people who are aspiring writers and they, it seems like there's no hope. There's no hope. I'm going to give this very cheesy thing. Uh, I maybe said it once before, um, but I haven't really officially said it. But I always like to think of like, before, when I was writing, I, I attended like tons and tons of readings, tons and tons of readings. Like I, I, I saw um, Edward P. Jones read at Union Square and Barnes and Noble. I saw Juno Diaz read from um, Oscar Wilde like a month after it came out. I, I went to Jessamine Ward's, like tons and tons of reading. And I like to think of, um, this is very cheesy, very cheesy, but I like to think of writing or career goals um, in terms of basketball. And I like to think of the year 1985, because in 1985, the MVP of, of the NBA was Larry Bird. He was the best player in the, in, in, the, in the league. But the rookie of the year was Michael Jordan, who ended up being like the best player ever, <laughs> arguably. And then that year, 1985, Kobe Bryant, was six years old. So he argued arguably one of the best two. And then in that same year, LeBron James is six months old in the crib. So you have like <laughs> you have Larry Bird, who's like the best player in the world right now. You have Michael Jordan, who's his first year in the NBA. You have Kobe Bryant, who's six years old, and you have LeBron James, who's six months old. And so I think of that year and I think like it's meant Things are meant to go forward. Things are meant to go forward. There, you're, you know, right now, the, you know, the three of us have have books. I'm I'm glad to have my book out in the world. Donnie wrote an amazing novel. Disha wrote an amazing uh, collection of stories. You've won awards, and you've given me my opportunity, my ten minutes to just kind of talk about literature. And then there's somebody who who's listening to this who's working on their collection, who's working on their novel, and they think like, oh, man, it seems unattainable, but it's supposed to move forward. And there's someone who's maybe in undergrad who hasn't even decided to, to write yet. And then there's like some seven-year-old who tomorrow afternoon, they're going to be playing tag in recess, and they might go on to win like the Nobel Prize. It's it's crazy how things things go forward. So I, I guess that's not working advice, but just, uh, I don't know, uh, psychological, keep going, 
type advice. Wow. Perspective. Mm. Wow. I mean, yeah. Mm. Thank you for that. Because sometimes we worry so much. Donnie and I were talking about this before you came on, Sadiq, about, Mm -hmm. you know, how we we can't manufacture success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And you mentioned luck. We talk about luck. All we can do is have our moment, write the best book that we can write. But we are a part of this larger ecosystem mm, mm. of writers, those that came, those are who, who we are, who are our peers, those who are coming before us, who came before us and those who are coming after us. And thank you for that reminder mm. of sort of our place in the, in that universe. I appreciate it. Okay. I appreciate it. Disha, did you have another, any other questions you wanted to well, you know, Sadiq nice. gave us his favorite line. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Sadiq, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for being an incredible storyteller. Mm-hmm. I feel a lot wiser having listened to you today. Thank you. I appreciate it, Donnie. Your students and your readers are so lucky. Oh, yes. thank you. Wow, that one. <laughs> Yeah, that one broke the skin and penetrated to the heart. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, everyone, for joining us. If you like what we're doing at URSA, be sure to share this podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to support us directly, become an URSA member by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll help fund production of this show and keep us going. We'll see you next time.